0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is Episode 7 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 17th of March. And Leon, this week we're talking about RMIT's sustainability program. That's right. We're talking to Michael Anderson and Lynn
1: Stevenson
0: all about RMIT Sustainability Week. Enormous, right across the city campus and their external campuses. And it's actually having a big impact on the city uh, too. Yeah, well, Melbourne's into sustainability changing uh, asphalt into grass, and and I think getting rid of cars. That's right. Much less parking than it used to be. Mr Wilson likes it. <laughs> <laughs> he does, he does indeed. And then after that, we're talking to Stephen Kukulis.
1: Yes, we're going to be talking to him all about the election result in WA and the implications for the federal government. And as we agree, it's all about the economy,
0: stupid. <laughs> Maybe also this red-hot minute about gas. That's right. And we're not talking about parliamentary gas. Okay, let's listen to RMIT's team on sustainability. Lynn Stevenson, tell us about uh, Sustainability
1: Week at RMIT.
2: Yeah, Sustainability Week um, happens in March and it's really um, an opportunity to have an, a sustainability orientation for students. So they'll have been on campus for a few weeks and really we want to just give them a good overview of what happens at s- Uh, at RMIT on sustainability Um, so it's a way of featuring what we do in our curriculum in our research and on our campus um, with a range of workshops speaker series activities um, and networking um, for students and and to help them meet staff in sustainability at RMIT.
1: Do a fair bit of work around corporate social responsibility don't you?
2: Yeah so uh, we've got a very strong governance structure around sustainability at RMIT so we have a sustainability committee which is a high level. governance of the university and that reports through to the Vice Chancellor and so with that we've been able to kind of systematically put um, corporate social responsibility elements into everything we do so we try and embed it across our operations, learning and teaching and research um, we have a sustainability policy and and really these are kind of frameworks to show that sustainability is core to um, everything we do at RMIT, it's not to the side as a nice to have we really want to have it embedded across all of our programs.
1: Can you give us an example uh, uh, some examples of how you incorporate corporate social responsibility in everything you do.
2: Yeah, so um, we've we've really started to take a look at um, how we invest our uh, philanthropy committee. Funds. So that's been driven um, initially by a student campaign for fossil f- fuel divestment. Um, but then, really, we at RMIT and the, the Sustainability Committee said, well, fossil fuels are one issue. What is our broader corporate social responsibility for our investments? So we've taken this year to develop responsible investment principles um, that cover a broader range of things like um, tobacco, gambling, um, anti-corruption, um, more of the kind of holistic social sustainability elements as well as the environmentally focused elements. So that's just one example of of some of the work we're doing at a governance level. We have the Sustainable Urban Precincts Programme, which um, Michael would probably be able to go more into detail, but um, that's... One of our huge major investments that the university's committed to sustainability for, you know, a really long five-year period with um, major investment and major industry partners. Well,
1: Michael, can you tell us about the Precincts program?
3: Yeah, so the Sustainable Urban Precincts Programme is a large-scale energy performance contract that the um, university is engaged in. Uh, It's a $128 million contract, and we've partnered with uh, Siemens and Honeywell uh, to undertake considerable-sized energy and water efficiency works across our campus. It's quite a heavy infrastructure um, focus for the university, Uh, so there's a lot of replacement of boilers, chillers, uh, lighting... Uh, looking at some on-site generation, both co-generation, tri-generation and solar PV. Um, So it's really just fundamentally changing the way that the university consumes energy. Um, And overall, it's expected to bring down the university's emissions profile by over a third. By a third? Yeah, so about 32,000 tonnes of carbon uh, every year we will see it drop.
0: So this would also mean that the university is saving money? Uh, yes. So
3: this this is the beauty with a lot of energy efficiency uh, work. It directly aligns with um, uh, financial incentives for any organization undertaking large-scale energy efficiency, is that in the long run, uh, you do make uh, financial savings. Um, and quite often when you look at the analysis, some of them come up with very short time timeframes. Um, so we're, we're looking at um, paying back our state government loan under this program within an an eight-year window. So yeah, some considerable work
1: here. You've reduced it by a third. Do you have a target? I mean, are you moving towards a target?
3: Uh, Yes. So the university's had a long-standing emissions reduction target. Um, So back in uh, 2008, 2009, uh, the university signed an, an agreement with the Australian Technology Network group of universities are uh, to reduce our emissions profile by 25% by the year 2020. And that's based uh, originally back on our 2007 emissions levels. Um, so we're uh, well on track to meeting that target through this program.
0: So now the program is also, it's right across the board in all of the campuses, including the Vietnamese and, and uh, the Singapore Connection. Could you tell us about where it fits there?
2: Yeah, so... The sustainable urban precincts program is funded by, partly by the Victorian state government. So it's all our onshore campuses. So it's our city campus, our Brunswick campus and our Bondura campus. But we do have linkages with our Vietnam campuses in particular and our property services teams are are joint and we do a lot of um, work with them um, around their portfolio of buildings. So um, we're looking at some considerable refurbishments of, of buildings on on our Vietnam campus. And when we develop our buildings over there, we, we try to build to Australian standards and take across all of our learnings from this campus in terms of asset management, environmental sustainability, and incorporate those into the learning. So we see our um, global campuses as just another extension of all of our core strategies and policies, we don't differentiate. Um, so that's that's very important um, so, that, so that there's consistency across the board. So it covers
0: practical things like uh, the environment within the buildings and things like that, but it's also designed to change the mindset, isn't it, in the management and in the student body?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Sustainable Urban Precincts Programme had um, a $4.8 million component for learning and teaching and research projects, and we funded 10 PhD scholarships for three and a half years so they're they're really a sustainability brains trust now Relating to that project, and we're very conscious within property services that if we have um, corporate partners and we have major capital projects, that we need to make sure that there are learning outcomes and student outcomes through those opportunities. So we have a lot of, um, for example, property construction project management students that work on the project management side of our projects, and that that kind of pathway into careers and opportunities is something that we're very conscious of. And they would pick up skills around sustainability as absolutely. far as absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, we, the concept is called a living laboratory where you use your campus to really act as a laboratory for learning. And so we've done a whole range of different projects with different students, different disciplines around energy efficiency, energy modelling, um, occupant behaviour and how sustainability in buildings exp- improves user experience in buildings and productivity. Um, so not just kind of thinking about the hard um, economic um benefits to these kind of infrastructure things but also the the more softer qualitative experience things that staff and students feel when there's a building that has better air conditioning better light levels um just more comfort as
1: well and and so these students would come from all Spheres?
2: all disciplines yeah I mean we've got a lot of multidisciplinary projects that was part of the requirement for um, the funding that we we allocated to the research and learning and teaching projects so yeah they're very multidisciplinary so you've got media and communications um, electronic engineering property construction project management we've got architecture and design um, business students there's a whole raft of different elements that you can pick up and I think that really brings a richness to the sustainability work. World, that you can, you show that these multidisciplinary projects. I mean, one of the things that the Sustainability Committee funded this year was something called the C16 Hack, which was a hackathon, which is this kind of design um, focused problem solving for students. And they brought multidisciplinary teams to take that kind of design thinking and, and solve real world sustainability problems.
1: That, that would suggest, though, that it would cover, because it would cover all disciplines, uh, it would affect every student at RMIT.
2: Well, our intent is that everyone has that sustainability literacy i mean sustainability at rmit is as a graduate attribute so we have we say that our graduates will Um, leave RMIT being environmentally responsible and aware and how that actually practically happens is very different in a curriculum context. So you may have very direct subjects in in science or in environmental science and planning, but also fashion students learning about sustainability in the garment trade um, and, you know, um, labour practices and those kind of things. So it's very discipline-based contexts.
0: Does the university get into advising industry or this sort of thing?
2: Uh, we do have researchers in that space. We're, we're directly based in the property services department, so we're more of the kind of corporate um, side of operating and the buildings. Um, but we do have researchers that are specialists in those kind of areas. So it's measuring the impact of our research um, into the community. But one of the things that we are doing is um, We've got a voltage optimization project where we can test new technologies. So, Michael can explain briefly what the voltage optimization project is.
3: Yes, yeah, so voltage optimization is a relatively new technology to Australia. Um, so, it has been around for a number of years within the um, UK market. Um, and we've seen it probably arrive about four years ago, realistically, here in Australia. Um, it's been taken up by a number of local councils. And um, we've seen it also installed at a couple of local data centers. But the rollout has hasn't been extremely wide widespread, um, so the university has uh, taken it on board to, to put in one of these um, voltage optimization units as a trial uh, with the idea that it smooths out the electricity arriving in that site um, to, to your building um, and in doing so saves emissions and energy overall by reducing the, the total voltage to the site. Uh, so it can sit in the background and it doesn't affect our users day to day but realistically from facilities point of view it, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer when it comes to again as I mentioned before uh, simple paybacks you know well within your eight year window. Uh, so. Yeah, common sense, really. The final question,
1: I mean, you would be working with a lot of the corporate sector. Would you be providing the corporate sector with learnings about this as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're in a number of networks um, and we report under GRI, which is the Global Reporting Initiative, and that's really to, to kind of showcase what RMIT does. But also we can learn from the, the corporate sector and there's a lot of industries that we collaborate with. We're very closely linked to the city of Melbourne. We we are 6% of the Melbourne CBD, so we have great opportunities for partnerships with the city of Melbourne um, to do large-scale um, projects whether it's addressing flooding issues in the city or greening the city so those kind of things it's a much more of a collaborative partnership approach Lynn Stevenson and Michael Anson, thank you very much thank you
0: thank you well Leon is pretty impressive I think I thought so too I think and it's really it really does have an impact doesn't it oh yes we're going to have to need that if we're going to breathe anyway Stephen Kukulus cool now
1: Stephen Gakoulis, uh, Australia is still absorbing the impact of the results in WA's election, which is very much about this is the economy, stupid. They've got a, a terrible budget deficit. They're, they're bearing the brunt of a mining downturn. Property prices have crashed in Perth. And their their growth has gone from something like 9% to two, less than 2%. What's your reading of it? And what are the implications for Australia?
4: Look, I think you've summarised it quite well. That Yeah. WA, uh, Western Australia, was really going through the hangover, if you like, of the mining investment boom, which of course started going bust about three to four years ago. And and it went bust in terms of the mining investment side, I think it's important to remember, because mining export volumes were good. They were exporting lots of tonnages of iron ore and the like, but the price that they were getting was weakening until recently. But of course, the other thing that's important is that they didn't employ many people. (laughs) All the work on Infrastructure and capex had been finished uh, and the decline occurred. And so, look, I think the Western Australian election result is about the economy more than one nation preferences. You yeah, know, they were sort of important at the margin. And for some of the political uh, pointy heads, they might be interesting. But I think at the end of the day, think about it if you're sitting in Western Australia over the last few years, the unemployment rates doubled, your house prices dropped about 10%, you've got uh, the weakest wages growth uh the highest unemployment in the country. Um you're going to be venting your anger somewhere. And of course with an election coming up, you vented at the incumbent government. I think that was a really important issue. And and Labour played on that. They played on the debt. They played on the, the weak economy and um it clearly struck a chord with so many voters. And look the implications, I guess, come back to the point about how you manage the boom and bust cycle in particularly the mining sector. I don't know whether we're going to be having a debate federally about whether we should be heaven forbid, thinking about um, mining profit taxes and things like that. But, yeah, you know, there's something to be said for that, that you put away the money when times are good so that you buffer the downturn that they occurred. WA did not do that and the government paid for it.
1: This has implications federally because it showed that people are willing to go out with their baseball bats to a yes. government and the government has lost direction and it's not heading anywhere economically. And that has implications for Canberra, doesn't it?
4: It, it does indeed. And, um, well, this is the interesting thing about what's happening you know, at, at the federal level. We've got the budget in, in about two months, or a little bit less than two months. And while they're sort of talking about housing affordability and these things, really important issues. So I hope they do make some progress there. That at the end of the day, uh, I think it's fair to say that electors, voters, um, are really concerned about a, a, about a few things. Their job security... That's important to them. So if you've got higher and rising unemployment, they get a bit anxious, and rightly so, of course. Their standard of living, so that's a combination of wages, cost of living pressures and these sorts of things. So that's, again, an indication, I think, indirectly about how strong the economy is. But at a bigger picture level, there's this sort of overarching concern from the voters that they want the government to be running the economy well. Now, that sounds like a very cliché thing to say, but in Australia, running the economy well is about the budget. Deficit—it's about government debt—and while there are reasons and very good reasons for running deficits and you know, increasing uh, the level of government debt when the economy is soft, when the economy is weak, um, there's only so long you can kick that problem down the road. You know, you've got to address it. So I think for Canberra federally and for the uh, Scott Morrison's budget in a couple of months, that he's really got to articulate a framework where it's about growth genuinely about growth not this rhetoric it's genuinely about getting the unemployment rate back to five percent or less you know we 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 had it there a few years ago and we haven't uh, done much about it and uh, so rather than you know the kerfuffle about uh, you know backpacker taxes which don't do anything really at the end of the day for the, the big-picture economy. They've got to have a look at a few of these bigger-picture items that, that will that if they're successful will resonate well. And again, WA is the example of what happens to a government that doesn't manage the economy well.
1: Uh, the, the issue too is, I mean, you've got unemployment which seems to be rising. or well, It's only at 5.7% because of the growth in uh, part-time employment. So there's a lot of underemployment out there. And also uh, you've got record low wages growth and people are really hurting
4: indeed indeed and, and I think your point about the labor market is is the issue because in a sense if you look at the headline numbers they're not too bad yeah they could be better but not too bad yeah 5.7 unemployment rates you know, not bad yeah, as I said before it should be lower it could be lower but it's not a recession it's not anything like that but the composition of the employment market over the last 12 months or so has seen basically zero full-time jobs being created and any growth in employment's been part-time now Nothing inherently wrong with that. Some people want to work part time, but we look at this other issue, which is gaining more attention in the analysis of the labour market, the underemployment rate. That is people who have a job, so they're employed, but who want to work more hours. That's sort of um, flirting with these record highs around about 9% of the workforce. So while unemployment is 5.7%, there's about 9% of people who have a job who are Pretty unhappy with their lot in life because they're only doing you know ten or twenty hours a week when they really want to be doing twenty or thirty hours a week. So they're not taking home as much pay. That feeds into their consumer spending patterns, and that feeds into the big picture of the economy, which is you know, even with the quite positive GDP numbers um, a week or two back, it's still in annual terms only 2.4 percent. It's not quite near that three percent that we need to be confident that the economy is doing well.
1: Well, the other issue too is, I mean, you've got the NAB business survey figures which are coming out tomorrow, which are expected to show business confidence remains high. But uh, consumer confidence has been dipping because of record low wages growth.
4: In, in, indeed. And I, I think that's the critical issue. You've got to remember, yeah, well, well, business confidence is vital. You know, business investment uh, has got to be the driver of any long-run growth cycle. You, you don't have a strong economy if the business investment climate's weak. But you've got to remember, on the other hand, too, that consumer spending, overall household spending still accounts for more than 50% of the economy. You know, more than 50% of GDP is what you and I and everybody just spends at the at the shops when we, you know, go to the doctor, when we uh, you know entertain ourselves and all these other things. That's consumer spending. And if we consumers either aren't getting significant increases in real wages, then of course you're constrained about how much money you can spend. You just can't spend it if you don't have it. We also have the concern that your job security, these things, the sentiment things that you point on that, well, I might be doing okay uh, financially. My house is sort of going up in value. The stock market's doing reasonably well, so my super's doing okay. But my job conditions, I'm not getting that pay rise, whereas I see my general bills coming in, the rate of inflation, if you like, um, uh, staying Sort of about the same pace as wages, so I'm not getting ahead. Uh, and I think that's the concern. And while consumers are cautious, while consumer spending and retail spendings you know only hovering around about two two and a half percent in real terms, bottom line GDP is not going to get to three percent. we need We need a rebound in consumer sentiment to to spark some of that increase in spending. So
1: uh, looking ahead uh, several weeks ahead into the budget, I mean, and given the lessons that the government might have drawn from WA, what do you expect the budget will have?
4: Yeah, look, uh, I, I think, well, one thing that they're going to, if you like, Scott Morrison's going to get a bit lucky, is that, uh, and even though these commodity prices, gosh, you know how fickle they are, they, they're up and down, you know, 5 and 10% in a week. Um, but nonetheless, I think the iron ore price and even the coal price, while it's come off a bit in the last uh, little while, is still what, well above what they're assuming at the MIEFO back in December. So if they put in a slightly higher uh, assumption for those commodity prices, which I think they should, it's worth a couple of billion dollars a year to them. Now, that's just sort of the the accounting trickery, if you like, of budgeting. What they need to do is have some policies that are going to grab the attention of the population that, yeah, as we're saying, it's a slightly different issue, but the 18C debate on you know, racial vilification. Um, a really important debate but it's not the thing that people will stop and be inspired about they need to do something to say well we've got the budget under control so we're implementing policies that are keeping us on a on a triple a credit rating if you like but we're also doing something about you we're doing something about housing affordability we're doing something about getting unemployment rate unemployment rate down we're doing something about education skills and training because our unemployment rate is is too high we want to get it lower and you you can't fix it overnight so policies that address those sorts of issues are really really important and the other thing which i think pops up is fairness and equity they've got to you know tax the people with or the companies or which part of that economy that's doing very well that seemingly doesn't pay a lot of tax um they've got to tighten up that now i think they'll get a big tick if they're able to achieve you know some proportion of that uh, wish list if you like i think that's what they need to do to not only to do a good job for the economy, but also politically to reverse what's you know, a really dire position for the federal government.
1: Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time, as always. Thanks,
0: Leon. So how do you read it, Leon?
1: A lot is said about the impact of Pauline Hanson on WA, but I think in the end, it was very much about the economy. They, they had the highest unemployment in Australia property values have crashed. They've got huge debt. They've lost their AAA credit rating and it has huge implications federally because what it says is that voters are waiting with their baseball bats to to take on any government that is indecisive.
0: That would have been a spur to uh, Malcolm Turnbull's um, approach to the uh, gas exporters. I mean, he came out of that pretty well. Okay, now the news, Leon.
1: Well, Gary, the US Federal Reserve this morning raised US interest rates up to 0 0.75% 0.75% to 1%. That's up point to up a quarter point, quarter percent to uh, from a 0.5% to 0.75%. Uh, the Fed's decision is in response to steady economic growth, strong job gains, and confidence that inflation is rising to meet the central bank's target. It's the first interest rate rise in 2017, coming after the last in December, and only the third since the financial crisis struck. Now, the news came as no shock to Wall Street, which had priced in a 100% probability of a rate rise, but it's one of the Fed's most convincing steps yet to return monetary policy to a more normal footing. And also, I might add, the Fed is now on track for two more rate hikes this year and three in 2018. And, of course, the bond
0: rate fell down.
1: The other interesting piece of news, Gary, is the British Parliament has passed legislation allowing the British government to invoke Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty and start the Brexit divorce talks. Theresa May can trigger Brexit in the last week of March. The House of Commons rejected amendments from the House of Lords and sought to restrict May's bargaining power. However, May now not only has to negotiate an exit package, but also manage a potential constitutional upheaval, with Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon pushing for a second independence referendum by the spring of 2019. Now, the exit package will take two years to negotiate, so we can expect two years of shocks to the world of Economy And May had been expected to trigger Article 50 on Tuesday this week, but Whitehall has now indicated it's likely to wait until the final week of March. And May wasn't willing to rush into Article 50 following Sturgeon's statement. Into Australia and continuing soft figures in the labour market and record low wages growth is hitting consumer confidence. Consumer confidence fell 0.7% in the week ending 12th of March, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. That's after it fell a sharp 4.4% the previous week. And the four-week moving average is now at its lowest level since May 2016. Now, households' views towards current finances lifted 3.1%, but views towards future finances dropped 3.4%, and views on the 12-month economic outlook fell a sharp 5.2%. And that's because of record low wages growth and rising unemployment.
0: And doesn't look like much in that area is going to change.
1: No. No, and according to, but according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Confidence is steady with an easing of concerns around the budget, economic conditions and tax It rose 0.1% in March from 99.6 in February to 99.7 But it's still fractionally below the 100 level that indicates there are still an, exactly an equal number of both optimists and pessimists and that suggests pessimists are still have the slight majority Now Australian business conditions got softer in February according to the latest NAB business survey The survey found that NAB's conditions felt to nine last month. That's from the post-GFC high of 16 in January. Business confidence fell from 10 to 7. However, the index still remains at levels pointing to solid rates of business activity. So what that suggests, Gary, is that there's a big gap between business confidence and consumer confidence.
0: Yeah, big gap. The business is uh, much more
1: upbeat. And that's uh, quite an issue. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia says it's prepared to introduce new curbs on lenders to stop the property market overheating and triggering a financial crisis. Reserve Bank says Governor Michelle Bullock told a function in Sydney, hosted by Bloomberg News, that the macro prudential regulations imposed on the banks in 2015 to curb investor lending, like for example the 10% a year limit on annual growth in a bank's investor portfolio, had worked but it seemed to be fading. And the RBA warning comes a week after the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development said that years of double digit gains in house prices in Australia could see property prices collapse and ultimately turn into a recession. Now Ms Bullock did not detail exactly what the RBA would do to Curb investor enthusiasm, but she said that since the global financial crisis, regulators and policymakers are prepared to take action if they see risk building. Also, uh, confidence for Australian farmers is still strong, but is eased back with the impact of the hot summer in southeastern Australia and concerns about what impact US administration will have on Australian agriculture. The latest Rabobank survey found that 59% of farmers expect the agricultural economy to perform at levels similar to last year in the next 12 months. And according to the survey, 32% of farmers say they expect an improved financial result this year. A further 50% Uh, expect similar incomes to 2016. And investment intentions have risen to a two-year high. 27% of the nation's farmers look to increase their farm business investment. That's up from 23% previously. And a further 66% are intending to maintain their investment in line with last year. However, the percentage of farmers expecting the agricultural economy to improve in the next 12 months dipped to 25%. That's down from 36% last quarter. And I think that's all because of the hot summer.
0: By and large, the cockies aren't doing too badly right now.
1: No, not too badly at all. And, of course, the commodity prices are
0: doing well for them. The milk's a bit of a question, Mark.
1: Now, new West Australian Premier Mark McGowan says his first priority is to bring the state's budget under control and to rein in debt, reclaim the state's AAA rating and get the state's troubled economy moving ahead. Now, the task ahead is daunting. The resources-rich state has borne the brunt of the downturn in commodity prices. It has the nation's highest unemployment rate at 6.5%. Its growth has plunged from 9.1% to 1.9% in the past five years, and the new government will have to deal with a mountain of debt in the budget forecast to reach $33.8 billion in June. And rise 13% next year. Now McGowan has pledged to bring the budget back to surplus in the first term, and to do that, he'll slash top bureaucrat pay packets. The number of departments and agencies will be cut by 20%. Government advertising will be reduced by about 20 million a year. Labor's pledged to block the planned sale of a 51% stake in energy provider Western Power, the state's electricity distribution network. He's also ruled out privatising Fremantle Board. It also puts future uranium projects in Western Australia in doubt. The ALP says it will not approve any new uranium projects Proposals, But it said it won't stop projects already green-lighted by the coalition.
0: It's interesting that another government is uh, talking about government getting back into power production and uh, stopping sale of assets.
1: Well, this is the very end. This is all part of the ongoing energy crisis in Australia, Gary. The South Australian government will spend $550 million on a new package designed to shore up its electricity system, which includes a $360 million government-owned gas-fired power plant and Australia's largest battery storage facility. And Premier Jay Weatherill and Energy Minister Tom Kunstantonis also unveiled policies designed to source and use more South Australian gas for its own electricity needs. That effectively puts a state before the national gas market and the $80 billion of LNG plans in Queensland, which are exporting vast amounts of gas from Australia. It will also pay landowners 10% of royalties for new production of gas and petroleum, which comes from production fields on their land. And has injected a further $24 million into a PACE grant scheme to add to an existing $24 million already on the table to incentivise companies to extract more gas from the ground in South Australia. And the Turnbull government is furious because this puts the national electricity market in question. It's seeking legal advice whether the South Australian government's decision today to go, to go it alone on energy policy constitutes a breach of the national electricity market rules. Now Elon Musk, Tesla is among those firms buying to build the 100 megawatt battery storage farm and local battery aspirants. Zen Energy, Lion Solar and Carnegie Energy have also put their hands up. I might also add this coincides with the Grattan Institute report earlier this week which found competition electricity retailing had failed to deliver low prices for consumers. And governments will need to step in and re-regulate prices if the industry doesn't lift its game. It found in Victoria they were having huge markups of as much as 13 percent, and found that reports in uh, prices in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Adelaide have almost doubled over the past decade. Now, still on uh, gas, the east coast of Australia needs $10 billion of investment to meet Australia's demand for gas through to 2030, according to international consultants McKinsey. And without that, McKinsey's warning that gas prices could double up to $12 a kilojoule, at least twice the current contract price of $5 to $6. You could also see the ammonia industry, which employs 2,500 people, closing down. And the McKinsey report follows a warning from the Australian energy market operator last week that Australia faces a major gas shortage, from next year, And so with all of that, there were crisis talks in Canberra, and gas companies made a guarantee to the federal government that they will make gas available to meet domestic demands. That includes periods of peak demand like heat waves. And that was after Malcolm Turnbull threatened East Coast gas suppliers that his government will invoke its powers to control exports should they make good on commitments to increase supply of the fuel. Into the domestic market,
0: yeah. And a further example of uh, how mad, or I mean, probably incompetent, Australia was to improve these uh, vast exports of gas is uh, there's a report that AGL's considering buying Australian gas back from Japan and shipping it back here. Unbelievable.
1: Anyway, this meeting, I might add, came days after the energy market operator warned Australia faces a gas crisis from 2019 that could see supply cut to industry or power outages. You know, that's despite the fact that Australia is is about to become the world's top exporter of liquefied natural gas. That's why Malcolm Turnbull said he will use his constitutional powers to control those exports yeah. unless they start providing the domestic market.
0: Yeah, what he's really saying is I've got a gun and I've got it at your head.
1: Finally, Gary, uh, faced with delay to its proposed $11 billion merger with TATS Group following concerns raised by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, TAPCOR has decided to go straight for another regulator, the Australian Competition Tribunal and supplied to the Australian Competition Tribunal for authorisation to proceed with the to and as a result, TAPCOR has withdrawn its application for informal clearance by the ACCC. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're having a chat with David Moylan. He's the Managing Director of Vault Intelligence. Yeah, and that's pretty
0: interesting, I must say.
1: In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.